0: Please turn in your Bibles to John 13. John 13. We are going through, as many of you know, the understanding of the Gospel of John through each and every successive chapter. And while you're turning to John 13, beginning in verse 1, listen to Philip Wesley Comfort regarding John 13. He writes, John 13 opens with a parabolic depiction of the steps in Jesus' journey. From leaving his position as the glorious God, to becoming God's servant as a man, to returning to his glorious state as the God-man. The first step is presented in the description, he got up from the table took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. This presents Jesus' willingness to divest himself of deity's privileges and leave his state of glory for the purpose of becoming a servant to men. The next step is described as follows. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. This reveals his ministry as God's servant to men. And the final step is as follows. Then when he had washed their feet, he put on his clothes and reclined again. This completes the symbolic act. It depicts Jesus' return to his former glory after finishing his service to men on earth. Once willingly divested of co equal glory with the Father in order to be a servant, he now resumes his former position. The entire scene, Philip Wesley Comfort says, is very close to what Paul verbalized in Philippians two five to eleven. John thirteen three to twelve provides the portrait. Philippians two five to eleven the caption. And that is so very true. You look at when Jesus washed those disciples' feet as he girded that towel around himself. That was an symbolic act, this uh, acted out parable of Jesus coming from glory to earth as a slave of men to die as a man. And in that very act of his servitude, he washed the disciples' feet. That's What he did as a man, he lived as a man, he fought as a man, and he died as a man. And then with his resurrection and his ascension, he went back to glory. And that's the sense of his coronation as the Son of God, having completed the work that God had given him to do. And Comfort says this is really the portrait in John 13 of the reality of what Philippians 2 says, listen to it, Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. That is true. It's really a depiction, sort of theologically speaking, of what Jesus is attempting to show his disciples by washing their feet. And what I want you to do this morning, even though we introduced John 13 last time, is to remind ourselves of what we learned. And especially for those of you who weren't here, we saw four key words from John chapter 13 beginning in verse 1, going all the way through verse 30. And I want to remind you of them. The first was love, love. The very act of Jesus bending down as a menial slave to wash his disciples' feet is an act of incredible love. You remember I told you, that normally not even Jewish slaves would do the menial task of washing people's feet as those feet got dirty in the walk and journey of first century Palestine. Not even a Jewish slave would do it. They would actually have a Gentile slave, according to first century and later Jewish knowledge, that this was actually something that was so menial, that was so low, that it would have been shocking and stunning, in fact, probably so stunning, that the disciples are actually, until Peter is the first one to speak, saying nothing. They are stunned that the Lord, their master, Jesus himself, their teacher, their rabbi, would himself take off everything except his undergarment, place a towel around his waist, would pour water over their feet into a basin, and then would take that towel and wipe the dirty, stinky disciples' feet. This is an act of love, my friends. And it does depict exactly what Jesus did. He came from that co-equal place of glory, With the Father, to come and be in the human form a man who would even be so humble, which is in fact our second word, humility, that he would wash the disciples' feet and thereby depict his own foreshadowing death that would come in only a few days. He was humble. In fact, he said, come unto me, you who are laboring and who have heavy hearts, for I am humble. And he was that humble slave who washed their feet, and it was because of his love. So love and humility, and then thirdly, service. The very service that he rendered was the act of the picturing of. Of his cleansing them from their sin. We know that because of what he says. He says to Peter, the one who has bathed, verse 10, does not need to wash except for his feet, and then this, but is completely clean, and you are clean. You see, that was just more than the idea that they had bathed earlier. In the day, to become ready for such a day, it was far more than just his cleansing of their feet. He turns this this menial task, this servant spirit into a depiction of what Jesus Christ was going to do in hours from then to a cleansing metaphor that he had in fact forgiven the disciples of their sins. That's a service to you and to me, every disciple of Jesus Christ. So this whole account, as it introduces the farewell discourse of our Lord, running from chapter 13 here, verse 1, through the last verse of chapter 17, this whole section of John's gospel starts here with the introduction of Jesus Christ telling us that by His love and through His humility and the doing of His service, Of washing their feet completely makes them, by application, clean and forgiven. Now it's interesting that in this very text we have a depiction not only of this positive act of our Lord, the very proactive response of showing them by this metaphor of foot washing that he was cleansing them and declaring them clean and forgiven. But there's also a very negative sense to John 13, verses 1 to 30. A very negative sense even about a person, and that person, of course, is Judas, Judas Iscariot. And that's our fourth, and the word I want to camp out on today, our fourth outline point from last week, and that is betrayal. Betrayal. You remember I told you that five times in this introductory portion of verses 1 to 30 of John 13, Judas is mentioned. Look at John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Look at verse 11, the second listing of Judas For he, referring to Jesus, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. For there was a disciple of Jesus who had walked with the other disciples, following the Lord, following his teaching, calling him rabbi, doing what all of the other disciples had done, doing the bidding of Jesus for over three years, And yet he was a sham disciple. And Jesus knew it. And he knew who was going to betray him. And he also knew that Judas wasn't clean. He wasn't cleansed. He wasn't forgiven. And then the third reference, look at John 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Referring to the eleven. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He, referring to Judas, he who ate my bread, and this will come just a little later, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's kicked against me. This could either be, uh, for instance, like a horse who raises up that hoof and kicks somebody from behind. This is the one who, For whom Jesus will say, even in this very text, I will take a morsel and I will dip it into the sauce, as it were, and I will hand it to the one who betrays me. And this is the very one who will eat this morsel, this bread, who is that Judas, who will also later, very, very soon in the later time, lifting his heel against me. And then he says in verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And then he says in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this is the third time that Jesus has said in just a few statements in this text, Betray, betray, betray. And then look at the latter part of verse 26. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. The very thing that Judas wanted to do was to betray the Lord Jesus. And it was actually by the very hand of Satan himself. So five references here to the betrayer. I want us to capitalize on these moments that we have together by not only looking at this negative idea of Judas the betrayer, but I want us to note that there's somebody else who's prominently listed here, and that's Peter. You will know that in the first part of chapter 13 verse 6 he came to simon peter who said to him lord do you wash my feet in other words you're the lord you you shouldn't be washing my feet and jesus answered him what i am doing you do not understand now but afterward you will understand after what after the cross After the cross, you're going to understand that this, this foot washing is actually a metaphor that speaks of the cross and what I'm doing to cleanse you and forgive you from your sins. Peter didn't understand that. Peter said to him, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share, no partnership, no relationship with me. Do you see that that phrase itself screams at us that this is not just a simple foot washing ceremony? He says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't cleanse you in the metaphor that I'm presenting to you, even though you don't understand now, but you will later, then you will have no relationship with me. You're no better than a Judas if I don't wash your feet. But if I do wash your feet, you will have a part with me. You'll have a ministry with me. You'll have a relationship with me. And of course, Simon, though not understanding fully, begins to at least understand a little. And what does he say in verse 9? He said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. You know, Peter was all or nothing, wasn't he? I mean, he, the apostle of the foot-shaped mouth, he was, he was always in or out, as the case may be. And here's why I think Peter is so prominently mentioned in this text along with Judas. We might say that Judas is the betrayer, and I think we could say Peter is the repenter. And I think those two perspectives, which are only the two perspectives that we have in this world, there are only two kinds of people, the betrayers and the repenters. The betrayers are the ones who may at times seem like Judas to be a part of the Christian community, the part of the believing remnant, the part who seems to want to go to church, who seem to want to pray, who seem to want to give, who seem to want to serve. But in the end, when the times are tough and when the exacting commitment is there, the betrayers, every single one of them with their arch example of Judas being at the top of the list, they will all fall away. They will all fall away because at their heart they are betrayers. They might look like would-be followers. They might seem as though they're a part of us. But as the Apostle John will say later in 1 John two nineteen, they went out from us, these betrayers, because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be manifest, made manifest, that they were not really of us. Why? Because they're betrayers of their Lord and of His doctrine. And then you have Peter. If Judas is the arch example of the betrayal of Jesus Christ, you have Peter who may look at times like he's all the way out, but he's really in. He may look like he's stumbling and falling, and he certainly does, and so do you, and so do I. But ultimately and finally, Peter is like us. We're repenters. We may sin, and sometimes we may sin egregiously. But in the end, in the finality of it all, we're those repenters too. And I think that's why Peter is showcased here, and I think that's why Judas is showcased here, to give us a sense of the only two realities regarding people in this world, betrayers and repenters. Do you want to see the repenter, Peter? We've already been introduced to him a bit, but notice, beginning in verse 21 again of this chapter, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Troubled is that word that's already been given to us twice before, once in chapter 11, once in chapter 12, and the concept of Jesus being troubled is is this, he's grieved, he's agitated, he's greatly troubled. And why is he troubled? because of the betrayer i mean this is not some calculated uh, prophetic fulfillment of scripture that there's going to be someone who betrays me and jesus says i know that it's judas and i know he's got to do what he's got to do and so i'm consigned to that in some kind of emotionless way not at all even though he knows that judas is the betrayer the bible says that jesus is still greatly troubled in his spirit Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's the Apostle John himself, we believe, who was reclining at table close to Jesus. You say, what does that mean? Well, remember, uh, the way they ate in the first century is very different than you and I do. We eat at a table in a sitting position, right? Well, they ate in what they called uh, the triclinium. It was kind of a a U-shaped table, and it was a very, very low table. It might be likened to some degree if you go to a Japanese restaurant, right? And you almost, in a sense, sit on a mat. Well, what they did in the first century was they not only sat on a a mat-like material, but they also leaned, and they leaned generally on their left elbow, and so that they were quite literally reclining at table. And the Apostle John is said to be that one who was reclining at Jesus' breast. He was reclining so that his head was right next to the chest of Jesus himself. He was the closest one there. And this disciple whom Jesus loved, the Apostle John, has Simon in verse 24, that is Peter, motioning to him to ask Jesus of whom Jesus was speaking. Who is this one who's going to betray you? who is this person it's jesus and the twelve they're in the upper room they're celebrating the passover the feast of unleavened bread this is supposed to be a glorious time this is supposed to be a time of great exaltation the the opportunity for the passover to be celebrated you remember the passover was when god passed over the israelites from the exodus account because the blood was on the lintel on the doorpost and they were saved, these ancestors of these very Jews, saved from judgment, unlike the Egyptians who had their firstborn killed. And then the Egyptian army was ultimately killed in the flood waters. And the Jews survived, and they survived even unto Jesus' day. And there were 12 of those that Jesus hand picked, hand selected. They had walked with the Lord for three years. And now Christ is telling them in no uncertain terms and in three different contexts within the same message in that upper room that he was sitting among someone who was the betrayer. It must have startled them. It must have shocked them all. And so they're now looking around at each other and saying, who is he talking about? Who's this betrayer? So Peter motioned to ask John to ask Jesus, verse 25. So that disciple, the apostle John, leaning back against Jesus in this reclining position as they were taking their meal, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel, implied of bread, when I have dipped it. And you know, this might actually signal an extending hand of Jesus himself of the fellowship and the relationship that he'd had at least externally with Judas for three years as one of his disciples. One more act of love. And of course, one more act of identification so when he had dipped the morsel he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot and verse 27 reads very sadly then after he had taken the morsel Satan entered into him Jesus said to him that is to Judas what you are going to do do quickly do quickly You have unmistakably in this text two different people that come to the surface, Judas and Peter. And it's also unmistakable that you have the betrayer and the repenter. And in order to fill us out with more detail just from this particular text, let's go over to Luke 22. Luke 22. This is another account of what was happening in that very upper room. This, of course, as I told you, was the Passover. It was the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And this fills out the backstory, as it were, from John's perspective by Dr. Luke. Look at verse 14 of Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is said even in this text to be the betrayer. And Jesus will also say in some of the other accounts of this very upper room experience, it would have been better for this man, Judas, to never have been born. He's the son of perdition, the son who is destined for this betrayal. And you would think because of the seriousness of this moment, because of the shock of the disciples at learning that one of them in the inner circle of the Lord Jesus is a betrayer, that they're stunned in the silence. They can't believe what's going on. There's this motioned hushness around the room, except for Peter saying in whispered tones undoubtedly, John, ask the Lord who it is. And notice what also is going on. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine At a moment like this in the upper room with Jesus speaking of the betrayer at hand and there's some kind of dialogue that eventually occurs where they're disputing among themselves as to who is the greatest, no wonder Jesus stooped down and put a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. You want want to know who is the greatest? The one who what? The one who serves. The one who serves. And this is what Jesus said to them about their dispute on whoever was the greatest. And he said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors for what they receive. But not so with you, he tells them. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink it at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Peter... Normally, the spokesman, who was probably one of the uh, more vocal in the crowd about who is the greatest, apparently sort of puffs up his chest, and he might have been one of those who was speaking the most. And he might have also been one of those, and certainly was, because in John's text later on in chapter 13, he says, Lord, I'll go with you wherever you go. I'm even prepared to die for you. To which we find here in verse 31 of Luke 22, these words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now remember what we said. Who had entered into the heart of Judas? Satan. So Satan had Judas right where he wanted him. And Satan also wanted to go into the heart of Peter himself. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But notice the difference between a betrayer and a repenter. But Jesus said in verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have And our translation says turned again. That's actually the Greek word that normally is translated repent. And when you have repented, strengthen your brothers. Do You know that's the difference between the betrayer and someone like Peter? He's a repenter. Oh, he may fall. And he may fall very ingloriously. He may fall to his knees. In fact, we know this very account, whether you're talking about Matthew's gospel, whether you're talking about Mark's gospel, or Luke's Luke's gospel, or even John's gospel. We have a man like Peter who belts out that he's going to follow the Lord wherever he goes. He probably doesn't even realize that all the temptations of his life are coming at him, and furiously so now, by Satan himself, who desires from God himself to go into the heart of Peter to sift him like wheat. And the only reason that that doesn't happen is because Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you repent, I think that's probably a statement. After you've denied me three times, when when you hear that cock crow, and when you realize That you have utterly turned your back upon me. I will look at you and I will tell you by my gaze that your faith has not failed and that you are cleansed and forgiven. That's the heart of our Lord. Do you want to hear it? Notice this. Verse 54 of Luke 22 they seized christ they led him away bringing him into the high priest's house and peter was following at a distance and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together peter sat down among them then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light in other words the, the light of the the fire had shown the close look at peter a servant girl as As he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, with Jesus. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted for this third time, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They heard his Galilean accent. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Some of the other gospels say, and he cursed. He pronounced a curse on himself. I tell you, I was not with him to my own damnation. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, the Lord Jesus, look at that text turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine the gaze? The very moment that the fulfillment of Jesus' own words, before that cock crows a third time, you will have denied me three times. And when the Lord looked at Peter with the searching, searing gaze of the Son of God, the very love of Christ, not his condemnation, came upon the repenter. And by the way, we know he repented because the text goes on to say, he turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And here's the proof of his repentance, verse 62, and he went out and what? wept bitterly, bitterly. He wept because he knew that he had denied his Lord. And the Lord had prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail and it didn't utterly come to ruin. His own belief that he was consigning himself to judgment by the denial of the Lord did not come to pass and God was gracious to him and caused him to be a repenter. He turned, and when he turned, he turned to Christ, and he served Christ for the rest of his days until he himself, as history suggests, was martyred upside down on that cross because he did not consider himself to be worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord. That's Peter. Oh, he stumbles and falls He says the wrong things at times and he even denied the Lord three times even to his own hurt. And the Lord said, but I've prayed for you. Satan will not have you. He will not sift you like wheat. You are my brother and I've cleansed you and I have forgiven you. And when you repent, you will strengthen your own brothers in the process that my friends is the autobiography of every one of us right we walk in this world we've got dirty feet but in the midst of being consigned to judgment we repent of our sins by God's great gift and he prays for us that our faith may not fail and we are the people to whom we could be characterized as the repenters what about Judas You say, what happened to him? Well, if you read the gospel accounts, he did in fact betray the Lord, didn't he? In fact, he betrayed the Lord with that which has now become a most unenviable term to use about someone else. He deceived me by the Judas kiss. He went to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he walked up and he said, Rabbi! And he kissed him on the cheek which was the very sign that he had concocted with the religious leaders to betray the Son of God. Jesus was arrested. Shortly after that arrest, and in a time of reflection, Judas attempted to give the money back, to which the religious leaders said, you're not giving it back to us. You find something else to do with that and your conscience. And so what did Judas do? You say, well, wait a minute. Even though he was the son of perdition, even though he was that one who betrayed the Lord, even though he was that one out of the 12 who was in it for the money, who was in it for his own self-aggrandizing purposes, whatever his motives may have been, didn't he, wasn't he one of those ultimate repenters? The Bible does say that he tried to absolve his conscience even through tears but he wasn't a true believer you know what we could see maybe as a picture of the difference between Judas and Peter the difference between Jacob and Esau how the Bible talks about Jacob who that from the Old Testament an example of one who also walked and stumbled and fell but ultimately was a true believer and for whom even the name Jacob was changed to what? Israel. Striving with God. He's the example of the Old Testament as Peter was in the New. And do you know who was the example of Judas in the Old Testament as Judas was from the New? Esau. Esau. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. You want to see who Esau was? He's like Judas. He may have contemplated the evil of his deeds, but he never repented, never truly. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That would be an example of Esau. And by it, many become defiled. That describes Esau. He was defiled. There was a root of bitterness, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, it talks about a godly sorrow. And it talks about a worldly sorrow. Do You know, that's actually what perfectly characterizes the betrayers and the repenters. The betrayers are those who have only worldly sorrow. And it may look to you and to me like it's a true and genuine and repentant sorrow. It may look to us like this man is serious. Look, Esau, he's crying. He, he has abject tears. He, he's remorseful over what he's done. Not really. The bitterness, the sexual immorality, the cares of this world, the self-orientation crowds out any possibility of true and genuine repentance. No godly sorrow here. And that, my friends, is true of Judas. Judas may have been in the eyes of some like this person who after he had betrayed his own Lord throws away the 30 pieces of silver and he wants now somehow to be right with God. And the Bible says all he ever did with his supposed remorse was that he went out and hung himself. He committed suicide. Not a true repenter. He's what he is. A betrayer. You know, we learn a lot from John 13. And what we learn is that there are only two kinds of people in the world. And I want to challenge every one of you as we sit here. Are you a betrayer or a repenter? Are you someone who Exerts nothing more than a worldly sorrow over your sin? Or someone who has a godly sorrow, who truly repents? That's the question of the age. That's the question of the ages. There's only two kinds of people ones who betray and ones who repent. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord, which one are we? Father, Truly, where are we? It doesn't matter if we have joined a church, given money, prayed prayers, walked an aisle, signed a card, involved ourselves in religious things. We could very well in our own hearts without anybody else knowing it around us and maybe even for ourselves deceived, that we are betrayers. Judas being the arch example, and unique though he was, as the unrepeatable denier and betrayer of the Son of God. There are disciples of His who betray their own Creator. And who even may seemingly seek repentance through tears. But even there, like Esau, never really doing it from the heart. Lord, don't let us be that person. Don't let us follow in in the example of Judas Iscariot and to betray you lord jesus with the judas kiss allow us even in our failing feeble frame stumbling and falling in major ways nevertheless be like peter the one who though he denied though he denied three times was the repenter and that at the gracious, good, gifted hand of God through Christ who denied Satan's request to sift Peter like wheat and prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And when he repented, And when he wept bitterly, and when it was true repentance, the Lord says, You're clean because I've washed your body and you're no longer filthy. And even when I have to wash your feet when you get dirty in this sinful, evil world, I, the Master, can become your servant to clean you in ways where you can't clean yourself. Lord, thank you for the gift of repentance. And may we turn, turn from our sin and believe in the only Son of God so that even if we occasionally stumble and fall, we will not fail. Thank you for the encouragement and the ability by your grace to repent from sin and place our confidence and trust alone in Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation. May it be so for your glory and for our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.